Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Anybody remember me? You know, you, you jet away for a couple of weeks and uh, you, you start to hear about it from people. And uh, I unashamedly step out of the pulpit, if we can call this that, um, for a, few, a couple breaks in the year. And uh, the reason I do it so unashamedly is because I actually think you're in at least as good, if not more capable hands when I'm gone. And that's, I praise God for that. Um, I, I said it to a lot of people last week who were talking about Pastor Chris's sermon, and I said to them, it, it, it's, it's something we value at Central, is there's no, there's no sense here in this church that, well, we get, you know, we get the third tier to teach the kids, you know, that's what we do. It's like, no, 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 who's the best? Let's let them invest in the, in, in the children because those are the lives that in all likelihood will be most transformed through the ministry of this church. And so uh, I'm just so thrilled with um, when I step out and I've listened to all the sermons since I've been gone, Nate Bursey, one of our elders, and Pastor Eldon, and Pastor Chris, and I just praise God for that, and I hope you'll accept me back, because you've had just great, great food to eat while I've been gone, so there you go. Want to say a quick statement? Sheep are dumb. I already knew this, but in my study this week, I learned it all the more. Sheep are dumb creatures. I read a couple of times, they're the dumbest of all the animals, and and there were a few examples that that led me to believe it. One is the fact that sheep can be cast or cast down, which means that when a sheep goes to lay down, it can often kind of lose its center of gravity in that transition to laying down, and it starts to get scared and freak out, which only makes it roll over more, so it's entirely on its back with its legs sticking up, and then it just starts to paw, run on the spot. And it's stuck like that. It can't get itself out of that scenario. Um, Not only that, oftentimes sheep get frozen in fear. Like, like, so there's a, a predator coming into the sheep pen, and the sheep notices this going on, but doesn't budge, just freezes up, and just kind of eyeballs it, just watching what's going on, sometimes to even let it start to devour the sheep, doesn't even let out a bath, just stands there frozen as it's getting eaten, like, really, these animals are crazy. Not only that, a shepherd will lead sheep into green pastures where they can graze for a long period of time. And yet, before you know it, some of the sheep, at least one, sometimes a few, start to wander off as if they're looking for green pastures. They leave what's so plentiful and they start to walk on rocks and into barren land just looking for more grazing when they had all they needed already, but they just started to wander off. Um, Some shepherds in history and in other parts of the world will still do this when there's a particular sheep that just continues to wander off. The shepherd will identify it, and a way to keep it from wandering off over and over again is to break its leg. The shepherd will break its leg, and then it will mend it. And for a while, the shepherd will sling that sheep around its neck and carry it around, and it'll start to heal, and then it'll walk by its side, and typically that same sheep won't wander again. 
kind of makes sense of something what you read in Psalm 51 where it's David, <laughs> David uh, has this song of, uh, psalm of repentance after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and uh, killed her husband Uriah, and he's repenting of this, and he says this verse that seems quite odd until we, until we start to think about sheep, which is, the bones that you have broken rejoice. Is that not one of the crazier statements you read in the Bible? The bones that you have broken rejoice. David's celebrating it. Why? Because he was wandering away from the sheepfold of God. And God in his mercy in the midst of his sin woke him up to it and drew him back, broke his legs in order to keep him from wandering, to keep him close. And David rejoiced in that fact. You love me so much, you won't let me wander away. Philip Keller was a shepherd, and he wrote a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23, a very famous psalm about uh, sheep, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And Philip Keller writes, sheep are given to listless wandering. These are even accounts of their walking into an, or sorry, there are even accounts of, of their walking into an open fire. Sheep, there's a fire. Shepherds confirm that they are timid and stubborn. They can be frightened by the most ridiculous things, though at other times nothing can move them. They are absolutely defenseless. There is no way a sheep can defend itself. Furthermore, of all farm animals, they take the most work. If you were to... Did you ever see that infomercial where, where you, they would teach you to read a book like this fast? Just like, remember that? Anybody remember that? Just like, how are you doing that? If you could sit down later today and just get through the whole Bible, you know what one of the themes is you discover? That we're constantly called sheep. Old Testament and New. People are referred to, especially like the people of God, are called his sheep. Now, first century uh, Jews listening to Jesus talk, as we'll see this passage in a moment, would have understood all the things that Jesus is saying about sheep. They see it, they observe it, they know how dumb sheep are. Some of us are a little removed from that. And so it's a little bit humbling when we start to gather information about what sheep are actually like. We're constantly um, called sheep, referred to as sheep. So I could go on and on and on this morning about the stupidity of sheep and make references to us. But I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of done talking about how dumb sheep are. Here's the reason why. The emphasis of this passage in John 10 we're going to look at this morning, the emphasis of this passage isn't on how dumb and helpless sheep are, but on how good and loving the shepherd is. That's the emphasis of the passage I want to show you this morning. It's about the good shepherd, and the good shepherd's name is Jesus before we get there, we have to set it up. There's a famous line, which is a text without a context is a pre proof, pretext for a proof text. I can't even get through it. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, picking up your Bible and just starting to read and reading out of context. And so what we need to do in order to understand what Jesus is saying in John chapter 10 is understand its surroundings and what's really going on. Pastor Chris brilliantly some, um, shared from John chapter 9 and the, the passage concluded with the man born blind now seeing and believing in Jesus and worshiping him. That's the conclusion of the passage. The Pharisees, on the other hand, weren't worshiping Jesus because they couldn't even admit that they were sinners. 
from there as they cast this blind man who now sees out of the synagogue, Jesus finds him there and begins to talk um, and begins to really embrace him and invite him in. And then very much just straight from this, there's no break, straight into chapter 10, Jesus begins to talk at length about being the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. He also begins to talk about thieves and robbers. So it's directly after chapter 9. To help us in summarizing some of the ways that shepherding has gone wrong in the Bible, I think Ezekiel chapter 34 summarizes this theme well where there are people who have been instructed or given leadership over God's people in history, happened in the Old Testament, happened in the New Testament, continues to happen today. People entrusted with leadership. Um, the Apostle Peter referred to Jesus as the, not just the good shepherd, but the chief shepherd and those who serve in leadership in the church as under shepherds. So this theme continues to this day. And yet those who serve in leadership over God's people can abuse it. Ezekiel 34 speaks to this where it says, Thus says the Lord of God. This is what God says. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Then, down to uh, verse 10 of Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I, this is God speaking, will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into our land, their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. God is stepping in and saying, these shepherds aren't doing their job. I am going to step in and lovingly lead them this way. Jesus comes in contrast to the shepherds who preceded him in Israel's history, who were fleeing the sheep when threats came and fleecing the sheep for personal gain. So God declares in Ezekiel 34, he himself will shepherd his people and bring them to safe and plentiful pasture. So let's read John 10 together. It'll be on the screen, first 18 verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus picking up from the the blind man seeing scenario. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, 
for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Here's the question that I want us to answer this morning. What makes Jesus the good shepherd? This passage gives us many beautiful answers to that question. Firstly, um, he knows, calls, and leads us. Now, interestingly, in the first six verses, he's talking about, he's referring to one kind of sheep pen scenario setting, and then in verses 7 to 18, he actually shifts it a little bit to another kind of sheep pen and setting, and we'll get to that in a little bit. The first kind of sheep pen and setting is, is, is a, a kind of a large communal sheep pen found in a city, a town, a village where all shepherds would lead their sheep into this communal sheep pen and there would be a gatekeeper there that they would all pay to keep bad people out and just to let the, sheep, the shepherds in to get their own sheep out. And Jesus says, to him the gatekeeper opens, the rightful shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The very first thing that we see here is that Jesus knows his sheep. That's one of the things that makes him the good shepherd. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. Verse 14, it makes it even more clear where Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. That's a staggering verse. Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father are one. They know each other perfectly, and Jesus says, in that way, I know my sheep. I know all. I know everything about them, right? Just like a shepherd with his sheep and is like, that's the one who likes to wander. That's the one that's got some stomach issues. You know, that's the one that, like, he just, like, he just knows everything about. So with Jesus. Is that a little too much? I don't know. And so, so with Jesus. Jesus is the same. He knows everything about us. And you go, oh, great, right? That's like a threat to children. God watching. God, God knows. Right? It's like, the, ah, right? It's scary. He knows everything. And you think, well, that's it. Over. No, he knows, but then it goes on and calls us by name. He knows us intimately. He knows us perfectly. And then he calls us by name and he leads us out. Leads us out of this sort of communal sheep pen into one fold, one church, 
out of lesser allegiances and into his fold, the church. We saw this with the blind man who had been given sight. They cast him out. He wasn't acceptable to the Pharisees. He was not allowed in the synagogue. So they cast him out. And then Jesus is there, seeks him out, proclaims who he is, and the man believes, and the man worships, and he's invited into the fold of Jesus. He's been brought out by Jesus and into the household of faith. As our good shepherd, Jesus does that in our lives as well. He leads us out of the lesser allegiances in our lives and brings us into his fold with one shepherd, one sheep pen, one fold. Jesus wants to lead us out of our lesser allegiances where we look for security, where we look for comfort, where we look for hope that isn't found in him. He wants to He knows us and he wants to call us and he wants to draw us out and into his fold. Goes on in verse 7 through 10 to talk about the fact that he is our salvation, protection, and provision. And he begins to describe the second kind of sheep pen. And this is a sheep pen found in the countryside or a makeshift sheep pen by the shepherd. The shepherd is out with the sheep, like, like uh, the nativity story where the angel comes and, and visits the shepherds. They're out on the countryside. This is the setting um, where Jesus is referring to now, where they're leading their sheep. They're trying to find uh, grain pasture in Palestine, um, the Palestinian countryside. It was, it was very rocky, and you just had to find the patches of pasture. And so there'd be a lot of wandering, but also in this rocky uh, topography, there would be the, like, these little caves. And so typically a shepherd would just lead the sheep into a cave in the countryside, and then he would be the door by sitting there in front of it, the one entrance, or at night laying across it, so that he himself is the door to the sheep pen. No one's getting in or out, but through him. He is, therefore, the salvation, protection, and provision. Jesus says, I say to you, I am the door. This is the third of seven I am statements Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. The fourth is coming up, but I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the entrance of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is making an exclusive claim here. I am the door. Jesus says later in John 14, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. And here he is saying, I am the door. No one comes in but by me. Because he's laying across the sheep pen. He is the very door. There is an exclusivity to this and yet there's also an inclusivity. The exclusivity is I am the door and the inclusivity is if anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. It's exclusive. Jesus is not a way, a truth, one of many kind of plurality of options in the world in terms of the world religions. It's quite acceptable to believe what you want these days, except to believe the exclusivity of Christ. Don't go there. You can't believe that. And, And what's told in the narrative of our culture is you can't believe that. You can't say that Jesus is the only way because he's not. There are other ways. He's maybe one of the ways. But see, first of all, that is a truth claim in and of itself. To stand in a place that says it's a way, it's not the way, is to also have a faith claim. So our faith claim is rooted in the word of God that says Jesus doesn't say, I am a door. I am a way, I am a truth, but he, he claims exclusivity. And in that, that if anyone enters by him, he'll be saved. 
Now look, I want to give you a couple examples of what salvation is not. A couple examples of what salvation is not. Here's the first one. When we read something like this, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Salvation is not this. When somebody hears that and thinks, you know what, that sounds really, really, really great. I just wish it was for me. I wish it was for me. And in that, in that statement, there is this sense of being too morally lost, too far gone. This sense that I've out sinned God's grace. But listen, remember, we've already seen that Jesus knows his sheep and calls them by name. He knows your life and it doesn't count on your righteousness, whether you're saved or not, can go through the door or not, but on who he is and his invitation to you. See, your sin doesn't preclude you from receiving salvation. It's actually the prerequisite of, for needing salvation. Sinners saved by grace that we need a rescuer, we need a savior. And if you're hearing about the love and kindness and the salvation of Jesus this morning, but thinking, I wish that were true. I wish that were true for me. I wish that applied to my sin, right? my habits, my vices, my struggles. I just want to reaffirm to you this morning, just look at the Bible, look at church history, God constantly takes the worst and makes them right. And it's always on account of his righteousness. I've heard and I believe it that, you know, speaking of church history, that God makes the worst of sinners preachers. So you're, you're, you're way off base when you think, hey, there's, there's, the, there's our pastor. There's the guy who gets it. There's the guy who does it right. I'm always like, man... God takes the worst of sinners and makes them preachers, and that's his grace. You know why? Because it forces a rebel like me into his word day after day, week after week, to humbly come and say, Lord, I need you. I'm prone to wander. I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. But you're holding me here by your word. You're accepting me, and oh, do I have grace your grace to share with others for your goodness. That's how the Bible speaks of people who are saved. That's how church history speaks of people who are saved. This is a very real struggle for many people, the struggle to embrace the grace of God. But look, verses like Isaiah 118 come along that say, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they shall be like wool. This passage is saying you're like stained fabric, all of your sin, and nothing's going to get that out except Jesus comes along and offers to do precisely that and washes it clean. Don't think that your sin, your past, your nagging vices are stronger than the power of God to save you in the midst of those things. Surrender your life to the good shepherd who says, I am the door. Come through me. You'll be saved. That's it. That's what he's calling you to. Another example of what salvation isn't is this. I am the door. Whoever comes by me will be saved. And the, and the response is, well, yeah, of course he'll save me. Of course he loves me. Of course, God is love. God is supposed to love. And of course God would love me. Of course he should be gracious. This is a sense of being right before God on one's own merit. This sense of I've lived a good life. Of course he'll rescue me, save me. 
And this attitude, this is an attitude that expects God's love rather than being floored by it. And if you and I hang around the church long enough, many of us have, there's just something that can happen in a, in a heart that is, doesn't remain soft to the gospel, which is we just come to expect His grace, expect His love, rather than constantly being floored by that love, by that grace. This attitude reveals itself in a lot of church types who, who are familiar with church but don't know their Bibles. We live in a, a biblically illiterate age where we don't really know our Bibles that much. And so we think we know the game. We think we know what morality is supposed to look like, how we should act. And we come to just assume, of course God will save me. Doing all the things. I'm looking right. And it's this horizontal vantage point that looks at the person down the line and says, well, I'm better than that guy. Not, not, not you, Gary. But just, I'm, better th- I'm better than that guy over there. I'm better than her. I'm better than, right? I'm doing a better job than them. They're terrible father. I'm a pretty good father. Of course, they'll save me, right? What? We, we do this horizontal, when we're not in the word of God, we just start to have this horizontal mindset of salvation of, well, I'm doing better than everyone else around me, I'm looking cleaner than them. And that's not the point. Rather than seeing, not a horizontal comparison, but this vertical one of seeing from God's word how woefully short we fall and how desperately we need God's grace. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. They're like filthy rags. So when we go, I'm better than that guy, of course he'll save me. Our, our, our better than is a stench to God. Like the dishcloth that's like been there for four weeks too long. <laughs> That was extreme. That was extreme. But actually, it applies. It applies. People are like, oh, oh. sorry. Anyways. Uh, right? It's, it's, that, it's that idea that when we look horizontally, we start to think, yeah, I'm doing well. I'm good with God. That's missing the point of salvation and the offer of it that Jesus extends. All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. So our unrighteousness doesn't keep us from salvation. And our self-righteousness is not anything that's going to save us either. It's all dependent on the salvation of Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story about this where he says, A number of years ago, a woman sat in a pew in the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which I now serve as pastor. At the time, the pastor was Donald Gray Barnhouse. I love all these three-name people. You know you've made it when you're, like, you're called by like three names. James Montgomery Boyce. Donald Gray Barnhouse, like these guys have made it. He was talking about the cross and of the need to believe on the Christ who died upon it. The woman I am talking about was not a Christian. She had been raised in a religious home and had heard about Jesus. She had heard about the cross, but she did not understand these things and therefore obviously had never actually trusted in Jesus for her salvation. In order to make clear that for salvation, Only belief in Jesus Christ is necessary. Barnhouse said, imagine that the cross has a door in it, much like our passage here today. Imagine that the cross has a door in it. All you are asked to do, all you are asked to do is go through it. On one side, the side facing you, there is written written an invitation, whosoever will may come. You stand there with your sin upon you and wonder if you should enter or not. Finally you do. 
And as you do, the burden of your sin drops away. You are safe and free. Joyfully, then, you turn around and see written on the backside of the cross through which you have now entered the words, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Barnhouse then invited those who were listening to enter. The woman later said, that this was the first time in her life that she had really understood what it meant to be a Christian and that in understanding it, she had believed. She believed right there in that church at that moment. She entered the door. Moreover, the rest of her life bore witness to the fact that a great change had occurred and that she was God's child. I am certain of the facts of this story, Boyce goes on to say, because that woman was my mother. I am the door, the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is a good shepherd because he is our salvation and our protection and our provision. This idea of going in and out and finding pasture has to do with protection because no one historically in ancient cultures would go in and out of the gate when things were unsafe. Right? When they were at war, you didn't just, as you pleased, go in and out. Right? But that's the language here. There's this protection of the good shepherd that allows us to go in and out and find pasture. This doesn't mean that our faith won't be tested and that everything will always go smoothly. Sometimes we just think this for some reason. We think it wrongly. We think, okay, he's my shepherd. He's going to protect me. All will go well always. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that we have a good shepherd who is able to keep us from falling and present us safe and secure for eternity to the Father. He is our protection. He will see us through. He is a good shepherd who will protect us ultimately. He's also our provision because you can go in and out to find pasture. In the context of shepherding, this refers to the shepherd's provision of food and peace. Even when enemies may lurk lurk nearby, the shepherd is aware and creates a space for his sheep to be fed and to experience peace. Again, this doesn't mean that Jesus meets our every whim and our want. In our culture, we often get mixed up what our wants are and what our needs are, and we often assume a lot of our wants are needs. Basic cable package, Lord, I need the premium. I need it. How am I able to watch four sports at once? Sometimes we get a little mixed up on what we need and what we want. So let me just for a second go back to the dumb sheep piece. Right? We're just aimlessly great. We're in a pasture that's green and perfect and all that we need, and we just start to wander off. We think, we, know, we think what we need is over there, over there. The good shepherd actually sees more than we do. And he promises to be our provision, meaning that when we even get mixed up what our needs are and what our wants are, we have a good shepherd who will provide for our actual needs, what he knows that we need to see us through in faith and in life. That he promises. Finally, last section, listen for the repetition. I'm going to read 17 to 18, or 11 to 18 again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves, and flee, the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Why is Jesus the good shepherd? He laid down his life for us. I want you to say a word with me. Vicarious. Oh, such passion there. Vicarious. He didn't just die. He didn't just kind of, oh, there's a wolf, and oh, the shepherd stepped in, and he died. The sheep are okay, or whatever. Like, it wasn't just sort of this exchange like that. It was a vicarious death that Jesus died. He paid the penalty for our sin and died in our place. That's what happens there. That's the promise of Jesus laying down his life as the good shepherd, laying down his life for us. It's this vicarious death where he pays the penalty for us and dies in our place. The good shepherd became the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. What a paradox. This good shepherd becomes the lamb who dies in our place. Revelation 7:17 paints this. It says, "For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd." What a strange verse. "The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." See, Jesus leads us to green pastures. If you read Psalm 23 later today, you'll see all of the promises and poetic Form, a famous passage about how he tends to us as a good shepherd, and yet he's also the lamb who, who in our place dies a sacrificial death. This is the heart of the gospel message. You and I are sinners, and our sin needs to get dealt with. And so we, there's a death that we deserve to pay the penalty for our sin. And when that scenario is taking place, Jesus steps in and he has a spotless record. He's lived in total purity, total sinlessness, and he steps in to die in our place. And as he steps in to die in our place, he bears our sins on his shoulders, and yet he's perfectly righteous, paying the penalty for our sins, dying the death that we deserve, rising victoriously, and then he gives us this offer, I'm the door. Come through me and you'll be saved. And as we do that, you know what takes place? The sin on our shoulders as we step through the door of the sheep pen into the fold are taken from us and God looks down at his sheep and all he sees in you and me is the spotlessness of Christ, not the sinfulness of humanity in us. That is the gospel. He's the good shepherd because he's laid down his life vicariously for us. There is a verse in here that is stunning it says in verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. See, Jesus is speaking to 100% ethnic Jews in Israel in this time, and he's saying to them, I have sheep that aren't of this fold, and I need to go, and I need to bring them into the fold. One fold, one church, one shepherd. He has come for the lost sheep from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. If you're not an ethnic Jew this morning, this is you in the Bible. If you've given your life to Jesus, there's sheep not of this fold. And Jesus says, I need to go. 
and I need to bring them. Ephesians 2.11 says, this, this, says it this way, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. A lot of circumcision talk, but let's get to the point. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I saw this morning a few uh, pregnant mothers in the building. I've got a suggestion for you. Name, if it's a son, name him Adoniram. Okay, start it. Get, it. get it going again, okay? It's an old school name. Old school names are coming back. Adoniram. I want to tell you the story of Adoniram Judson. On June 28, 1810, Judson and others presented themselves to the Congregationalists for missionary service in the east, in the eastern, east coast of uh, the U.S., 1810, for missionary service. He met Anne Hazeltine that same day and fell in love. He was 22 at the time. She was 21. After knowing Anne for one month, he declared his intention to become a suitor. It's very 1800s of him. And wrote to her father the following letter. This is 22-year-old Adoniram writing to Anne's dad, asking to become her suitor. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can cons- it gets, yeah. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing, immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen save from those who don't know Jesus through her means from eternal woe and despair? It's very different than, oh, hey, look, can I, like, uh, marry your daughter or something? Oh. Come on, 22-year-olds, up your game, man. <laughs> Adoniram style. Her father, amazingly, this is also very 1800s of him, her father amazingly said she could make up her own mind. So there you go. <laughs> uh, she wrote to her friend Lydia Kimball. Here's her sense in going off to Mission Frontier with... This young man, Adoniram, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, if God doesn't keep me from going, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God, in his providence, shall see fit to place me. They would have three children together, One was a stillbirth, the other died at 17 months, and the third lived to be two, outliving Anne, who died when their third was a year and a half. Judson would go on to suffer greatly in his 38 years of missionary work in Burma, now Myanmar, 
but would be credited with translating the whole Bible into Burmese. The largest Christian force in Burma is the Burma Baptist Convention, which owes its origin to the pioneering activity of the American Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson. It is now 3,700 congregations with 618,000 members and 1.9 million affiliates. Let me ask you a question. Why did this 21-year-old girl, 22-year-old boy go there? Because there's a shepherd who is so good. All you have to do is enter through the gate and you will be saved you will be protected, you will be provided for. I will know you intrinsically. I will call you by name. I will lead you out into green pastures now and for all eternity. And I can prove it because I've already died to accomplish that for you. And so when they came to realize that there's a shepherd that good, And God's gospel is a global gospel with a vision of reaching every tribe and tongue and nation, the people who don't know the good shepherd. Their lives were so changed and off they went. Jesus died for those who will be saved, for those that God the Father has given him. That's what this text says. This gospel is global and Jesus is building his church all over the world. In fact, right now it's thriving in the hardest places on the planet. That's where the the gospel is flourishing. And we, you and me, in light of knowing this good shepherd, all these reasons why, get to be heralds of the gospel. We get to share this news that's so good about a shepherd who is so good. To close... The Greek word used to describe Jesus as the good shepherd, there's two different Greek words often used, but the, the one used uh, for good shepherd here is a, is a word that, that actually most naturally translates beautiful. So what makes Jesus such a beautiful shepherd? As our text describes, it's many things. He knows, calls by name, and leads his sheep out of lesser allegiances and into his fold, the church. He is the salvation, protection, and provision of his sheep. And he loves them so much that he laid his life down for their good. Jesus is the good shepherd. We're going to pray in a moment and uh, invite you to a time of response. The, the band will lead us in one final song. Um, but we also have a prayer team, and they like to make themselves available in different parts of the room. You can just slip to one of those areas and, and receive prayer for anything. Um, we love to pray together, and, and that's an opportunity we, we want to avail to you. So let's pray together as we close and respond in these ways. Oh, Jesus, I hope that the, the, the thrust of this passage is, is, is what is impressed on our hearts this morning, and that it has little to do with the stupidity of the sheep, but everything to do with the goodness and love of the shepherd. Thank you, Jesus, for displaying that to us, making that so clear. And Jesus, as we reflect on this fact that you declare that you are the gate, you are the door, you are the entrance to salvation, Lord, I pray for those who have never walked through it, who have never uh, actually said, yeah, I want to follow you. I want to surrender to you. I don't need to clean up to do it. I simply come and walk through the door. God, for those who haven't done that this morning, And there is a sense in their hearts, Lord, that is you prompting them 
to confess to you as Savior, Rescuer, Lord. To come before you and say, thank you for dying for me so I could be forgiven and have abundant life. God, I pray that in this room, that you would do that in hearts this morning, that we could celebrate that. Father, also I pray um, for the fact that there are sheep not of this fold. You've gathered your sheep into the church global, and there are people who don't know how good a shepherd you are, both locally and abroad. Oh, Father, would you continue to make us a church on mission? It is our heart's cry to share the gospel locally, to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ in Chilliwack and Agassiz and beyond. So we ask for that. Would you do that through us? We want to do that, Lord, because you are so good. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.